Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Holocaust. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the slide, Ancient Examples. Today we will discuss the unfortunate history of the Holocaust, or the Shoah in Hebrew. We will show how hatred led to the industrial scale state-sponsored mass murder of 11 million human beings. Now, the Holocaust does not just spring out of the imagination of Adolf Hitler. No, anti-Semitism has a long history in European, and honestly, in numerous non-European cultures, even to this day. So disclaimer, we are going to be talking about some heavy and graphic stuff today. So where does anti-Semitism begin? Unfortunately, Pogroms and anti-Semitism have a long history. If you know your biblical studies, then you know that the Assyrians, Babylonians, and ancient Roman Empire all conquered and dispersed the Hebrews of the twelve tribes of Israel and Judah. After the spread of Christianity to Europe from the 1st to the 13th centuries, attacks on Jews became frequented because of the blood libel, which was a myth among Christians that Jews used the blood of newborn babies in their ceremonies. Due to this, there was a surge of attacks on Jews from the Crusades and over the next few centuries. For instance, tens of thousands of Jews were slaughtered during the Crusades as bands of Crusaders destroyed various Jewish ghettos. In addition, Edward the Longshanks, of Braveheart movie fame, removed the Jews from England in the 1200s. The Jews were also expelled from the Iberian Peninsula during the Spanish or Portuguese Inquisition in the 1500s, which scholars lump together and call the Iberian Inquisition. We also see attacks on Jews during the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, as Catholics were killing anyone who disagreed with their interpretation of Christianity. Throughout Europe, Jewish civil liberties were greatly curtailed. Jews were deprived of land ownership and other rights. They were banned from civil service and in some countries, were also banned from military service. Jews were forced into certain type of employments, like banking, since Christians in this era said that usury, or money lending, was a sin, so only Jews could perform that role, which helps explain the rise of the myth of the greedy banker Jew. The point is that Europe has a long history of anti-Semitism, but it became most pronounced in the latter half of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Nation States. The rise of nationalism led to the creation of nation states based on linguistic, religious, and ethnic identity. As such, Jews were targeted as the other who did not conform to these circumstances. In addition, they were forced to live in certain areas. As an example, from 1791 to 1917, the Pale of Settlement was created in Imperial Russia, which was a region where the permanent residency by Jews was allowed, and beyond which Jewish residency, permanent or temporary, was mostly forbidden. This region was created after the first and second partition of Poland, when large numbers of Jews were now in conquered Russian territory. Queen Catherine of Russia allowed Jews to live in this region for economic reasons, 
but forbade their merchants elsewhere in her empire. In the mid-1800s, under Nicholas I, the Pale shrank and became more restrictive, but this was reversed by Alexander II from 1855 to 1881, who expanded rights for Jews. However, following his assassination, his son Alexander III became deeply anti-Semitic and believed that Jews had conspired to assassinate his father. So he enacted strict repressions against the Jewish community. In addition, pogroms, which were murderous attacks on Jewish communities, occurred frequently between 1881 to 1884 and 1903 to 1906. These later pogroms were inspired by the publication of a book called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a fake Russian text that purported to show the minutes of meetings between leading Jews who plotted to control the economies and media of Europe to subvert the morals of the Gentiles. It was published all over Europe, and it caused a series of deadly pogroms to break out. And a fun fact, Henry Ford paid to have 500,000 copies made in America as he was deeply anti-Semitic. Besides pogroms, Jews contended with a bleak, hard-scrabble existence in the Pale, where there was little economic opportunity and many relied on social welfare from fellow Jews. As a result of this economic stagnation and physical violence, many Jews left Russia, with thousands coming to the United States and Western Europe. Now, anti-Semitism wasn't confined to just Russia in this era. In France, a military court convicted Alfred Dreyus, a Jewish army officer, of spying for Germany in 1894, though he was actually innocent. The trial caused mobs of Frenchmen to shout death to Jews and other such sentiments. As religious confession became subsumed in European political culture by national identity and nationalist sentiments, a new series of stereotypes was reinforced by older prejudices and fueled anti-Semitic politics. These stereotypes included, one, that despite the fact that Jews enjoyed the benefits of citizenship, they were nevertheless secretly disloyal, and their conversion had only been made for material gain. Second, that Jews displaced non-Jews in traditionally, quote, noble professions and activities. This led to the belief that they were clannish, and thus blocked the entry of non-Jews into these professions that they controlled, and so they represented the future prosperity of the nation in industry, trade, finance, and the entertainment industry. Third, that Jews used their disproportionate control of the media to mislead the nation about its true interest and welfare. Fourth, that Jews had assumed the leadership of the social democratic and later communist movements in order to destroy the middle-class values of the nation, religion, and private property. These prejudices bore little relationship to political, social, and economic realities in any European country. This fact did not matter to those who became attracted to the political expression of these prejudices. Many Jews saw this repression and yearned for a homeland of their own. One thinker, Theodore Herzl, used these sentiments to promote Zionism, which emphasized the creation of a Jewish nation, Israel, in a region called Palestine. From the 1880s onward, a small number of Jewish immigrants went to Palestine where they used funds they procured or received from wealthy benefactors 
to buy poor land from the Ottoman Empire in order to set up their small communities. However, this immigration did not pick up until the interwar period, and especially after the Holocaust. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Nazi First Steps. We already covered this in the origins of the Second World War lecture, but we will revisit it here briefly. The devastation of the Great War and the Treaty of Versailles left Germany prostrate. Food was scarce, inflation reigned wild, which wiped out life savings, and political protests often turned violent. For instance, in one single year, 90 people died in street battles between rival political parties and their paramilitary groups. All of this contributed to the rise of the stabbed-in-the-back myth that Jews and communists had forced Germany to make peace, though the army was never defeated. Seizing this myth was a bombastic demagogue, Adolf Hitler, who led the Nazis, a political party devoted to Aryan supremacy and racial purity. While in jail, after his failed beer hall putsch, Hitler dictated his book, Mein Kampf, meaning My Struggle. And this book outlined his plans for the future, of territorial expansion, a nation founded on racial purity, and eugenic or genocidal policies meant to eradicate what he described as international Jewry. After coming to power legally, Hitler acted illegally in his quest to consolidate his rule over Germany. Rival political parties were banned, free speech was curtailed, books were burned, professors arrested, and universities forced to teach Nazi curriculums. The Nazification of culture took place, which forced anti-Semitic teachings into primary schools where kids were indoctrinated to hate Jews. Hitler even turned on some of his own supporters when he led the Night of the Long Knives, which purged many members of the Nazi party who were not specifically devoted to Hitler himself. With his power consolidated, Germany passed the Nuremberg Laws in 1935, and this forbade Jews to become German citizens. It made it illegal to have a relationship between Jew and Gentile, and in addition, many Jews, the mentally ill, and other peoples who were viewed as unfit, were forcibly sterilized so they could not conceive children. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Next Steps. Now, Try to follow the terrible efficiency and logic of industrialized genocide. From 1938 to 1939, many Jews attempted to leave Germany, and the Nazis tried to deport as many as possible, but many countries denied them entrance. So Germany was still stuck with their, quote, Jewish problem. On November 9th to the 10th, 1938, Kristallnacht, or the night of broken glass, broke out. In Germany, 7,500 Jewish stores were looted and destroyed. 191 synagogues were destroyed. 91 Jews were murdered. And 30,000 were arrested and sent to concentration camps, where hundreds died. In 1939, Germany conquered western Poland, which included 2 million Jews, compounding what they saw as their, quote, Jewish problem. Well, at first, some Jews were shot on sight but that's inefficient. You need to concentrate them into one place before you deal with them so you can make it more efficient. So most Jews were herded into urban ghettos and eventually relocated to concentration camps. Early on, most camps were work camps 
not death camps, because the Germans wanted labor for their war machine. Those who remained in the ghettos had a rough existence. If you already lived there, you had to share your home with your entire extended family and then were forced to take in strangers. If you were sent to a ghetto, you could not bring all your possessions, and then you were lodged with strangers. These areas were effectively under martial law. You wore a star to identify yourself as a Jew. You had a curfew. You were given starvation-level rations and forced to work for the Germans. And many went along with this because they thought that this was just one more in a long line of historical persecutions. If they tried to rise up, maybe things would get worse. Numerous companies were complicit in this Nazi effort. For instance, IBM, Volkswagen, BMW, Mercedes-Benz, and Hugo Boss all supplied the Nazis with arms, equipment, vehicles, and other materials for the war effort in the Holocaust. And banks like Deutsche Bank took Nazi gold, which had been created from melted-down Jewish possessions. And so these banks used this capital for their operations. Now eventually, Hitler and the Nazis settled on the final solution to the Jewish question, which meant outright extermination. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Holocaust. When the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941, they were followed by rear units specifically designed to kill racially suspect peoples, Soviet political commissars, who were basically like a communist propaganda officer, as well as Jews and other undesirables. In fact, Soviet political commissars were specifically targeted in the Commissar Order, which described them as, quote, the enforcer of Judeo-Bolshevism ideology, end quote. So any suspected Bolshevik officer was immediately executed by the ranking German army officer. Hitler declared that, quote, the intelligentsia established by Stalin must be exterminated. The most brutal violence is to be used in the great Russian empire, end quote. So following behind the army was the SS and their Einsatzgruppen, or mobile killing units. They went around Poland and Nazi-held Soviet territory to conduct open-air executions, which the shooting of unarmed Jews and other civilians outside of urban centers. For instance, the massacre at Babi Yar led to some 33,771 Jews being killed in two days' time, which was the single largest massacre up to that point in the Holocaust. It was followed by the Rumbula massacre, of about 25,000 Jews killed in two days of shooting. One last example is the 1941 Odessa Massacre from October 22nd to the 24th, where 25,000 to 34,000 Jews were shot or burned. In the aftermath, the murder of well over 100,000 Ukrainian Jews in the town in the areas between the Dniester and Bug rivers occurred during Romanian and German occupation. The picture that you see on the slide is called the last Jew in Venista, taken by a member of the SS, and it depicts the last man of 15,000 Jews in the city who were shot and thrown into mass graves. If you look at the next slide, you'll see another photograph of a mass execution of Soviet civilians by the Germans. In some cases, in order to save bullets, wives and husbands would be marched to bridges, tied together, one shot, 
and as both fell into the river, the dead spouse would drown the survivor. Historian Raul Hilberg estimates that between 1941 and 1945, the Einsatzgruppen, related agencies, and foreign auxiliaries killed an estimated 2 million people, including 1.3 million of the 6 million Jews murdered in the Holocaust. Of course, throughout this process, the Germans did not do it alone. After all, the Germans can't just come into a town and figure out who is a Jewish person. Someone needs to tell them who they are and where they live. So who knows this? The clergy, the women, and local officials with their information networks, since they are all busybodies. Also, Eastern Europeans provided many auxiliaries or troops to help Nazis do the dirty work. So Romanians, Ukrainians, Moldovans, Belarusians, and others all take part in this horrific process. But this is too inefficient. It's a waste of manpower, since you need troops to shoot innocent boys and girls. It's a waste of resources, meaning bullets to kill civilians. And it is too lengthy, since not enough people are being killed fast enough for the Germans. And also, this takes a massive psychological toll, as even the hardest, most anti-Semitic Nazi SS officer can only shoot so many innocent people at point-blank range before suffering a catastrophic psychological breakdown, further making manpower an issue. So the Germans begin experimenting with gas fans. They have them at centers where carbon dioxide, or other gases, can be used in a van to kill people placed inside. But this is also too inefficient. You have to get these vans to places, and it takes gas from them to run. They're too small. They're not fast enough, and you still have to dispose the bodies. Well, while outright violence can be used to kill perceived enemies or peoples, hunger has historically been a powerful weapon of conquest and subjugation. So the Germans developed what historians have called Nazi hunger politics. In Nazi-occupied parts of the Soviet Union, bureaucrats enacted the Hunger Plan, which said that since Germany was not self-sufficient in food production, it needed to import or confiscate food, which was critical to sustain the war effort, because Nazis knew they had to keep up domestic morale, as they remembered that it was hunger who had forced many Germans in 1918 to protest against the Great War, which led to the downfall of Kaiser Wilhelm's empire. So this plan meant to strip Soviet territory or any conquered area of all their food so it could be sent to Germany or one of their allies. In other words, this is an engineered famine, planned and implemented as an act of policy. At the highest levels of government, Nazi planners estimated that military action and a crisis of food supply would kill between 20 million to 30 million Russians alone, though the actual number is slightly lower than that. The historian Timothy Snyder estimates that 4.2 million Soviet citizens were starved by German occupiers from 1941 to 1944. In addition, the most reliable figures for the death rate among Soviet prisoners of war in German captivity reveal that 3.3 million died from a total of 5.7 million captured between June 1941 and February 1945, with most directly or indirectly dying as a result of starvation. Of these 3.3 million, 2 million had already died by the beginning of February 1942. Elsewhere in Europe, Greece was worst affected in relative terms, 
There, famine followed Nazi occupation and the Allied blockade in 1941. And although foreign food aid helped, arriving in neutral Swedish vessels from November 42 onward, the death toll of 300,000 people still accounted for about 5% of the population, all as a result of Nazi hunger politics. Famine mortality elsewhere in Europe was slightly lighter. In Austria, about 100,000 people, 1.5% of the population, perished from 1944 to 1945 as food access was restricted due to the declining war effort. As quote-unquote Aryans, the Dutch were relatively well-treated by their Nazi occupiers until late 1944, when occupying forces in the heavily urbanized Western Netherlands responded to a rail strike and associated partisan activity with an embargo on the transport of food supplies. This quickly converted a situation of adequate food supplies to one of severe privation and famine, with the estimates of excess mortality during the Hungerwinter range from 15,000 people to 25,000. So what does this mean for the average person under occupation? Well, the so-called rations for Jews in Minsk and other cities within the control of Army Group Center and Soviet Union were no more than 420 calories per day. The result was that tens of thousands of Jews died of hunger and hunger-related causes over this time period. Now think about living on 420 calories. There are some drinks or single fast food items out there with far more calories than that. So you are barely able to function. You have pounding headaches. Your body is achy and fatigued. You break out in cold sweats, and you shake and shudder, and worse. While this is a horrific way to die, all of this is too inefficient. It was too difficult for the Nazis to clean up starved bodies all over a city or the countryside. And it is not as well targeted, and it can lead to rebellions which would take troops to put down. No, you need something bigger. Murder at a cold and calculating industrial scale. The deadly efficiency that the Nazis looked for came in the form of death or extermination camps, including the largest one at Auschwitz, located in Poland. Jews were sent by railway. They were greeted by dogs and guards, but also to Wagner music. The men were then separated from the women and the children. Sometimes, men were sent to work areas, while the women and children were sent further down for immediate liquidation. First, the Jews were sorted out, their possessions taken. They were told to strip for delousing, and told that they were going to be put into a large chamber that looked like a shower. Go ahead and look at the next two picture slides, where you see these trains, and then finally, the gas chamber. These human beings were thrown into these gas chambers, which were then filled with carbon monoxide and later cyanide gas to kill everyone. The corpses had their fillings removed, and they were sent to the incinerators for cremation. Think about one of the survivors. They can see that the ash is thick in the air, as you know that your entire family was just murdered, and that this black snow was all that was left of everything you had once loved. Your tears smudging their ash on your face. Go to slide called number four crematorium while I go and enunciate what it was like in these chambers. Quote, It is midday, 
when a long line of women and children and old people enter the yard. The senior officer in charge climbs on a bench to tell him they are going to have a bath and that afterward they will get a drink of hot coffee. They all undress in the yard. The doors are opened, and an indescribable jostling begins. The first people to enter the gas chamber begin to draw back. They sense the death that awaits them. The SS men put an end to this pushing and shoving with blows from rifle butts, beating the heads of the horrified women who are desperately hugging their children. The massive oak double doors are shut. For two endless minutes, one can hear banging on the walls and screams which are no longer human, and then not a sound. Five minutes later, the doors are opened. The corpses, squashed together and distorted, fall out like a waterfall. The bodies are which still warm, passed through the hands of the hairdresser, who cuts their hair, and the dentist who pulls out their gold teeth. One more transport has been processed through number four crematorium. End quote. It is truly horrific, and words fail to describe the terror that those people must have felt. Those people who were not immediately liquidated were subject to medical experiments, as the Nazis used Jews and other peoples for horrific experiments. For instance, at Dachau, physicians conducted high-altitude experiments to see the maximum altitude limit for pilots and also conducted freezing experiments to find out how to treat hypothermia. At Buchenwald, scientists infected patients with diseases and tested immunization compounds on them. They even experimented with bone grafting and antidotes to chemical weapons like mustard gas. At Auschwitz, Nazis attempted to find an effective and inexpensive procedure for mass sterilization, conducted experiments on hundreds of twins to see the divergent effects of their treatments. Those who survived lived day to day. You competed for food. Women had to use their sexuality to survive. Those children who survived and were orphaned were raised by survivors. You were beaten daily, starved, and mocked. Nazis laughed in your face as you cried for your dead loved ones. Death marches also took place around these camps. These are the forcible movement of prisoners by the Nazis near the end of World War II and the marches often took place in the summer and autumn of 1944 and May 1945, when hundreds of thousands of prisoners, mostly Jews from German concentration camps near the Eastern Front, were moved to camps inside Germany and Austria away from Allied forces. Purpose of these marches was to allow the Germans to use the prisoners as slave labor, to remove evidence of their crimes against humanity, and to retain control of the prisoners in case they could be used as a bargain chip with the Allies. Already sick after months or years of violence and starvation, prisoners were marched for tens of miles in the snow to train stations, transported for days at a time without food or shelter in open freight cars, then forced to march again at the other end to a new camp. Those who lagged behind or fell were shot. The largest death march took place in January 1945. Nine days before the Soviet Red Army arrived at the Auschwitz concentration camps, the Germans marched 56,000 prisoners out of the camp toward Wieselaw, 35 miles away, where they were put on freight cars to other camps. 15,000 died on the way. The point is that this is barbarism. Please advance to the next slide entitled 
resistance. I have heard many ask, why didn't the Jews do more to fight back? And this is actually a misconception, because while the story of the Holocaust is usually told as one of victimization, many fought back. Now don't get me wrong, many Jews did not resist, and part of the answer lies in the historic persecution of Jews in Europe, where they had been forced to put up with immediate violence with the understanding that resistance would only make things worse. But once evidence of an impending liquidation or the deportation of hundreds of thousands of Jews from ghettos to death camps was witnessed, organized resistance finally came to fruition. So first, let us discuss resistance from non-Jews to the Holocaust and the Nazi regime. And an example of this is Operation Anthropoid. This was the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich, who was the main architect of the final solution to the Jewish question. Previously, he had organized Kristallnacht. He was responsible for the creation of the Einsatzgruppen and the SD, which was the intelligence service designed to crush all dissenters, and he ended up suppressing Czech culture after he arrived in Prague. Wanting to take him out was a group of Czech soldiers in exile who were trained by British special forces and inserted near Prague. The soldiers waited in ambush as Heydrich commuted from his home to the Prague castle, and at a bend in the road his car slowed down, and the Czech soldiers tried to shoot him, but their guns jammed. Now instead of doing the smart thing like speeding up to look for help, Heydrich ordered his driver to stop, and he pulled out his pistol. So, one of the Czechs threw a modified anti-tank grenade, which detonated near the car, spraying Heydrich with shrapnel, which he later died from. So while the assassination was successful, the Czech team was ultimately killed in a shootout, and the Nazis ordered a series of reprisals, which led to the arrest of 13,000 Czechs and the murder of 5,000 more when the cities of Ladice and Lazaki were razed to the ground by the Germans, and all males above 16 years old were shot and the women and children sent to concentration camps. After that, there were fewer assassination attempts on Nazi officers. Jews inside death camps risked their lives for a chance at freedom. At Treblinka death camp, 1,000 Jewish prisoners revolted on August 2, 1943, when they seized weapons, tools, and anything else they could find. They set fire to the camp, and 200 escaped, though half were recaptured and shot. On October 14, 1943, 300 prisoners of the Sobibor death camp killed 11 SS guards and broke through the barbed wire and ran through the surrounding minefield, though 100 were later recaptured and shot. Nearly a year later, on October 7, 1944, prisoners at Crematorium 4 at Auschwitz rebelled after learning that they would be killed, but the Germans crushed this revolt and murdered several hundred prisoners in an orgy of violence. The single most successful uprising occurred in the Warsaw Ghetto from April 19th to May 16, 1943. After a quarter of a million Jews were deported from the ghetto and sent to death camps, the Jews began fortifying basements into bunkers, and they collected firearms and improvised explosives. The SS planned to deport most of the ghetto within three days' time, so when the SS entered the ghetto on April 19th, which was Passover Eve, they were ambushed by Jewish insurgents, who fired and threw Molotov cocktails and hand grenades from alleyways, sewers, and windows. 
two vehicles were incinerated, and the SS suffered 59 casualties. Later, two young Jewish boys lifted the red and white Polish flag on top of a building in the square, a highly visible and defiant symbol. Over the next month, the SS resorted to burning the resistance out of their basement bunkers, building by building. And one survivor later noted, quote, We were beaten by the flames, not the Germans. End quote. As a result of the uprising, 13,000 Jews died in the revolt, and about 6,000 of whom were suffocated or burned to death in the flames. In the aftermath, 36,000 were deported to extermination camps, where most died. Now, Jews also joined a numerous amount of partisan groups, which are paramilitary units that fought a guerrilla war against German forces and their allied auxiliaries. About 20,000 to 100,000 served in partisan groups in Eastern Europe, with about 30,000 inside Soviet territory alone. While many Jews were resented by Christian Russians and Poles, the Jewish partisans fought off German units, rescued Jews on the way to extermination camps, and set up their own communities where they cared for women, children, and the elderly. One unit, the Belschke partisans, were featured in the movie Defiance, starring Daniel Craig. Now, while many of these revolts are not successful by modern sentiments, Jews face the awful choice of a passive death or violent death with a small chance of freedom. So as a result, tens of thousands chose to take their fate into their own hands and die on their own terms. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Results. Ultimately, 6 million Jews died in the Holocaust, with about 5 million other peoples. And these include quote-unquote undesirables, which means gypsies, homosexuals, the physically handicapped, the mentally ill, Poles, Slavs, dissenters, and various POWs. And we should note this is a conservative estimate, and it does not count many civilian casualties that resulted from Nazi hunger politics and other reprisals. It also does not account for Jewish, Soviet, or Polish insurgents, to name a few, who fought a guerrilla war between Germans, their allies, and collaborators. This pitted communities against one another, and much animosity from the war never abated, lasting throughout the 20th century. We must make one more awful point. When the USSR takes over Poland and other Eastern European countries in the aftermath of the Second World War, many Jews had been released from these concentration camps, but they are later sent back because Stalin distrusts everyone. So maybe you survived a Nazi camp only to be sent to a Soviet gulag. Also, after the Holocaust, as Jews tried to return home, they found new people, Christians, living in their homes or operating their businesses. And when they complained, they were murdered, since these Christians wanted their property and won't give it back. Basically, they just want the Jews to stay dead. It is terrible. And in my opinion, this is why Israel is so important, at least to some. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Reactions. Now, many Germans claim that they had no idea that this was going on, but that is impossible. And I want you to think about this, because how do you get the Holocaust done logistically? Well, let's say you're a railway worker. 
you know trains go from ghettos to camps full and leave empty. If you're a local person, you see ash coming from the smokestacks. You smell the horrific stench of death. If you're living in town, you knew the Jewish family down the block is now gone. People or bureaucrats have to schedule trains. Food is sold to camps, and the Nazis keep a paper trail of everything, so every bureaucrat knows. That is how we were able to do the Nuremberg trial, because the Germans, if anything, keep exhaustive records. So every bureaucrat knows what's going on. Most people know what was going on, and they could not claim otherwise. So when American and British forces find these camps, they force local German residents to bury some bodies and bring home the awfulness to them all. Please click on the link to the Band of Brothers episode where it depicts the American 101st Airborne discovering a concentration camp. Okay, so did you watch it? It should move you to tears. Now, unfortunately, many of the architects of the Holocaust, like Adolf Hitler, Heinrich Himmler, and Joseph Goebbels committed suicide before the war ended. But 22 German war criminals were punished at the Nuremberg trial, where they were brought up on charges against humanity. Eleven defendants, such as Joachim von Ribbentrop, Wilhelm Keitel, Alfred Rosenberg, and Alfred Jodl were executed, while the head of the German Air Force, Hermann Goering, committed suicide in prison. However, many Nazis got away. Dozens of officials and hundreds of guards and soldiers fled to South America, where anti-Semitism was prevalent and whose right-wing dictators were less than inclined to give up the Nazis who provided them intelligence on suspected communists. The CIA and the BND, basically the American and German intelligence agencies, knew many Nazis were in countries like Argentina, but they did not pursue them because it did not align with their interests in the Cold War, and because they worried that if captured, they might inform on former Nazis in the West German government who were critical for the NATO alliance against the Soviet Union. A perfect example of this is Adolf Eichmann, who was responsible for facilitating and managing the logistics involved in the mass deportation of Jews to ghettos and extermination camps. In particular, he was responsible for overseeing the deportation of Hungary's Jewish population after the 1944 invasion. Due to his efforts, in a matter of months, 75% of Jews from Hungary were murdered upon their arrival at death camps, and 437,000 of Hungary's 725,000 Jews were liquidated in less than a year. At the Nuremberg trial, a witness testified that Eichmann said he would, quote, leap laughing into the grave because the feeling that he had 5 million people on his conscience would be for him a source of extraordinary satisfaction, end quote. With German defeat in 1945, Eichmann escaped Allied captivity and with the help of a Catholic bishop, made his way to Argentina. In 1960, Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, located Eichmann in Buenos Aires where he was employed at Mercedes-Benz. Argentina had a long history of turning down extradition requests, so a Mossad team was inserted to capture Eichmann. After weeks of preparation and investigation, Eichmann was grabbed off the street on his way home from work, hid under a blanket on the floor of the car, sedated, dressed like a flight attendant, and flown to Israel for trial. 
he was convicted of several war crimes and sentenced to death, being eventually executed by hanging. And this episode caused a diplomatic row between Argentina and Israel, and the CIA and other intelligence agencies worried that their favored politicians in the West German government might be in trouble if Eichmann informed on them. The point is that Mossad and Israel, facing resistance from many other nations, hunted down Nazi war criminals on their own. However, after the 1960s, other Nazi criminals were tried in Germany, the United States, France, and elsewhere, though many escape justice to this day. And can you guess who was not punished? Who largely got away with this? Local women, Christian clergy, and other local officials in Eastern and Central Europe. They absolutely took part in this mass murder, often participating directly or providing intelligence or logistical support to the SS or the Einsatzgruppen. Like I said, a German can't just walk into Warsaw or a local Lithuanian village and know who the Jews are. Someone has to tell you. And all of these individuals escaped any punishment for their role in the murder of all these people. Let me ask you a question. What could we have done to stop this? Why didn't other countries intervene? Or could they even intervene? Well, by 1942, the United States and Great Britain certainly knew about the Holocaust, as many Jewish organizations kept screaming about it. But they remained focused on the war effort. We have to admit that anti-Semitism was strong in both countries. Also, boatloads of Jewish refugees were turned away from America and later murdered by the Nazis. There's another part of the debate. Could the Allies have bombed the railways leading to Auschwitz? Well, probably not. The technology in this era is not sufficient to do a coordinated strike on a small railway. And more importantly, you might destroy a Jewish-filled train or hit the civilian quarters at a concentration camp. Lastly, the Allies realized that in order to end the war quickly, they would save the most amount of lives. Please turn to the last slide, with images of children in the camps. The Shoah, or Holocaust, was the result of centuries of anti-Semitism, the demonization of a group of people who were depicted as the other. At first, it was just jokes, or trolling in our modern parlance. Their culture, language, and physical appearances were mocked and denigrated. This incivility then enters politics as politicians use it to get votes, not understanding the damage they are doing to public discourse. Then, conspiracy theories, lies, and slander whip the public into frenzies that lead them to murder and loot the homes and businesses of Jews and others. From there, the government creates a systemic discrimination, marginalization, persecution, sterilization, and finally outright extermination. This is the danger of out-of-control nationalism, of ethnic or racial supremacy, and the embrace of a demagogue who promises the solution to all your problems is an attack on someone who is different than you. When Christians, or any religion, fails to stand up for what is right, to protect human life, not just in the womb but in society in general, then they are complicit in such crimes. Look at the faces of these children. They never got to have normal lives, and many of their existences were brutally cut short. We must never allow this to happen again to any people, as it is a stain on the human species.
and a sign of her inner barbarism. That is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Please be kind to one another. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.